0: Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin.
1: Hey all, welcome back, Startup Grind Global Podcast. This is Chris Jon and today we have an incredible story, one of my favorites. Um sometimes you just get to interview someone and you're just like, wow. Um and this is one of those cases. Um today we had Lena Nair, the the chief HR officer of Unilever Globally, um, and you know, and member of the Unilever Leadership Executive. She was the first female first Asian and youngest ever c h r o at unilever and we just go th- through what an incredible journey that's um her story um everything from starting in in this village in India through to you know her struggles and her you know blazing a path for women um as she went she was oftentimes the first and only female. At in each of these stints she did, and kind of you know set the set the bar along the way and 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 made it easier for those that came after her and and part of her legacy has become you know achieving a fifty fifty gender balance um, for a hundred and fifty thousand strong um, employee base at Unilever just in crazy crazy um, and and all the you know the positive repercussions of that and the growth of the business and ensuring that um you know the voice of the customer is represented in the leadership team you know with um, the majority of unilever's customers being female and just so a true pioneer i'm sure you'll love this story enjoy welcome lena nice to have you
0: delighted to be here chris
1: i I'm, i'm excited to talk to you and hear um your journey here at unilever um I've got Jemima listening in and some of the Unilever team. Um, Jemima at at, at Seven Hills. Thank you again. Amazing guest as always. (laughs) Um, She's not going to say anything. Um, All right. Um, Lena, I I, I start this question. um, I start with this question. um, Was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? (laughs)
0: Yes, yes. My father was an entrepreneur, and my father was a very, very strong sponsor for me. So, you know, I grew up in a small town, and where it wasn't, you know, I didn't have too many role models of women who worked, you know, you constantly heard that being a girl meant you really couldn't be ambitious, you couldn't have a career. So my father was a very strong influence because he was a strong sponsor and genuinely believed that we should all follow our dreams and fly off to wherever we needed to. And I'll tell you a uh, story. When my sister and I were born, he was insistent that we be named with names that can be pronounced in all countries. That's how (laughs) I was named Lena and she Mm -hmm. was named Sheila. And to think that you know, at that time, he's living in a small town in India and has no idea that his daughters could actually be doing something global. So he was that kind of man. He is that kind of man. Oh, God. <laughs> That's
1: incredible. Incredible. And then what, what was it? What was the town?
0: You know, it's a place called Kolhapur, which is um, on the way from Bombay to Goa. So if you start in Mumbai and you want to reach Goa, somewhere in the middle, you'll reach my little town called Kolhapur. It's famous for making footwear. It makes a kind of specific footwear called Kulapuri chappals, which is sort of flat leather uh, footwear, which is very popular to wear with Indian clothes. But other than that, most people wouldn't know where to find it on a map <laughs> if you told them where my town was.
1: All right. Well, then this is interesting. I want to hear this journey now. So how, how does it like, where, where, do you, where do you get educated? How do, how do you end up in London? <laughs> it's a pretty long story, Chris.
0: With
1: that, with, that, with that time, I want, to, I want to hear this stuff. It's not going to be all Unilever, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> so, I, I like I said, I grew up in uh, Kulapur, small place. So the first proper school, English medium school for girls, came up in town when I was six or seven. And we still call the first batch of the first school because every year they'd add another classroom and say, okay, now you're promoted to the third standard and yay, we have third standard in the school. Fantastic. <laughs> now we're promoted to the seventh and yay, we have seven standard in the school. So we still call the first batch. There's a big photograph of us in the school because we literally sort of created the school, grew with the school, uh, you know, uh, so I had never imagined growing up that I would have the opportunity to do what I'm doing today. I was just so desperate to get educated. I just wanted my school to come up. I wanted to be able to go to university. I would be I would cycle uh, 12 miles to my college every morning and evening. So it's been a long journey, but all that time I didn't know what I'd get to do. I wanted I was ambitious. I wanted to make a difference in the world. I wanted to have a voice but i had no pathway to know how and i grew up with 16 cousins which is fun you know but lots of hand me downs very humble beginnings a proper entrepreneurial you know rags to riches story father uncles everybody started with very little they'd all migrated from the south of india to the west of india so pretty humble beginnings loads of fun I always say I don't remember the deprivation but I do remember the fun hanging around with all my cousins who many of them are my best friends even today so um, I then decided to do engineering I wanted to go engineering again you know girls didn't do engineering in those days I wanted to do engineering because I was good at maths there was okay. no career counseling or anything in those days that showed you any other careers and it was a little bit, you know, some of my brothers were doing, ma- uh, were doing engineering. So I said, I want to do engineering. If they're being allowed to do engineering, I want to do engineering. So it was a bit like that. And I went to Walsh College of Engineering, again, a school that's about an hour and a half from my home. And despite making it to other places as well, more reputed, more prestigious, my dad was very clear that I needed to be close to home. My mom, of course, was already petrified that I was this ambitious and I was going to do engineering <laughs> and she was constantly worried whether there'd be anybody ready to marry me with this sort of ambition and this sort of career uh, career passion. Okay. So I uh, did my engineering. And we were 18 girls and the college had like 5,000 boys or something. I can't even remember the numbers, but it was like crazy. So that was the beginning of learning what it was to be in the minority, learning what it was to be when you are part of a group that's underrepresented, uh, learning what it takes to earn respect and do the things I wanted to do. You know, I the college had been in place for more than 400, 500 years. It's a gorgeous college, huge campus, great activities, have had some of my best years there. And I remember I went on stage there and I was the first woman in 400 years to actually go on stage and perform. And I joined, you know, I was on an elocution competition or debate, I can't remember. And I remember standing on stage, being booed, oh, crying, no. but refusing to get down to light like set by piece. And then, of course, they got used to the idea of women on stage. And I went on to do many things in, in campus that were, you know, that were very, very enjoyable and contributed to my journey as a leader. I then worked as an engineer for a few months as a telecom engineer. Chris, this is a lot of story. You can stop me anytime.
1: No, no, no. I'm, in, I'm enjoying this. I think that, yeah, don't, do, don't, don't wreck it for the lesson, listener. I think they're having a great time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, uh, that training in some ways was good because it gave me the confidence of being the only woman in the room time and time again, which would become a story of my life mm-hmm. in my career. So I'm hugely grateful to those four years in engineering uh, and teaching me some very, very important life lessons. I then worked as a telecom engineer for a few months uh, electronics and telecommunications engineering, didn't enjoy it. You know, I think I was a lousy engineer. I liked the intellectual challenge of being an engineer, but the actual work, I don't think I was excited by that. I remember I used to spend more time thinking about when the lunch break would happen so that I'd get to meet a few people and get to have a chat. Yep. So um, I then decided to do my management studies in uh, human resources. Again, another another life lesson, have good mentors, because one of the people who advised me to do that was my mentor from my engineering school, the person who taught us management in the engineering school and who was president of our debating association. And he was a fabulous professor. And he said, listen, do something to do with human resources or marketing because that's where your passion is. You would connect to consumers, you would connect to people. That's what gets you going.
1: That's what gets your heart singing. So yes. I um, decided so, to go. Sorry, forward. sorry, yeah, sorry. It's it's so funny that you know uh, we have these people in our lives, right? Like you yeah. just kind of you pinpoint it right now in this story. You're like that, like that's a pivotal moment. It is.
0: And then I went to tell my father that I'd decided to do an MBA and I wanted to specialize in human resources. It wasn't even called human resources in those days. It was called personnel. And my dad was disappointed because he said, "Oh my God, I, you know I." We've broken all these taboos and norms of what girls can do, can't do. He's been such a strong sponsor for me to go and get educated. And here I am doing personnel, which he thought was such a back office function. He said, who cares about personnel? I mean, it's a back office function. No business really cares for anything to do with personnel. I you sure you really want to do this? And I was a bit crushed. I was like, okay, it doesn't look like this is a, an exciting career option for my dad. But a something in me, and this is, you know, by then I was old enough to know what my instincts were telling me, my intuition was saying, go for this, this is something you're going to enjoy. So yeah. I wanted to go, um, so I, you know, signed up to go to XLRI. Mm-hmm. It was 48 hours by train to get to right. XLRI. So that was a very long way away from home. And... I remember my father and mother, you know, sitting me down fully supportive for them. It was a big move, you know, from small town years ago, going 48 hours away to the other end of the country to learn human resources. And my dad said, yes, you can go, provided you get married before you're 24 and you have an arranged marriage to someone (laughs)
1: like You know, Chris.
0: And yeah. I said, okay, okay. I thought that's so far away. Who the hell's thinking? You know, I've got to go and do this MBA and we'll figure out. Yes, it is. Sure, sure, sure. All signed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done, done. Promise dad I'll do that. And off I went. I loved my two years at XLRI, Jim Shepard. It was really lovely um, because from the moment I started learning human resources, I started doing business studies. I realized that I really loved commerciality of a business. I loved you know, the whole connecting with consumers, understanding needs, creating businesses, getting them successful, growing the top line. I loved it and I loved human resources and the subjects that we were being taught. So those two years were like a dream. I loved it, I knew I'd make the right choice. And at the end of it, uh, Unilever came on campus, one of the most dreamed about companies on campus, hugely respected. And I joined as a summer intern in Unilever, Went to spend three months in summer with Unilever, loved it, loved the quality of people, loved the quality of work, and thankfully, they liked me and gave me an offer, and I came back to join them as a management trainee. In those days, it was called Management trainee. Today, we call them Future Leaders League. As Sarah is one of our future leaders on, on the program. So I joined as a management trainee, Chris, and that's how the journey with Unilever started 27, 28 years ago.
1: That's incredible. Um, and then and then I have to ask, what's happening with the, the, the pressure from mom and dad with the, the, <laughs> the wedding? <laughs> the I did have an
0: arranged marriage, Chris, touch wood. And Kumar is really the best thing that's happened to me in my life. You know, it, it's funny. I uh, turned 23 and I get a call from my dad. I've been working with Unilever for about a year and a half. I'm loving it. You know, it's all going swimmingly well. And I'm in a factory in Chennai working and my dad calls me up and he says happy birthday and remember your promise and I was like what promise I totally forgot it he said you're gonna get married before you're 24 and I'm gonna pick the person for you and I was like no I'm not ready for it blah 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 and he said promise is a promise too bad and uh, you know Actually, he was just being clever. He had done all his research. He had done all his searching, and he said, "This is this really nice man. I want you to meet." So mm-hmm. I said, "Don't tell me from the you know." Five days later, he called me and said, "This is really nice man. I want you to meet." I said, "It can't be that I said yes, and in five days you've got somebody ready. It means he'd been <laughs> up to it for quite some time, even before he spoke to me." So um, yeah, and I met Kumar. So I thought, okay, this is a free trip to Mumbai. I get to meet you know someone and Dad, I knew my dad and mom were progressive enough that if I said I didn't like him and I don't want to do this they'd be okay with that but I went to Mumbai and I met Kumar and I really really liked him and we started dating so that's the story so it pays to listen to your father I don't yeah. think my father had, had any reason to worry because I was so driven. I've always been so driven right through all my educational years because every time I got an opportunity to get educated, I would feel this whole responsibility thing. Whoa, my God, I've got an opportunity that so many others have not growing, where I did that I'm going to do everything I can to excel in it. So I was so driven, I, you would chances are you'd find me, you know, um, acing the grades, I was gold medalist in, every class I studied in from nursery to MBA school. So my dad needn't have worried. I was just too driven. I was called phenomenon on campus. Menon was my maiden name. I was called phenomenon on campus because I was so driven. I wanted to excel at everything from sport to studies to debate to, so he needn't have worried. I think I intimidated most boys.
1: That's great. That's incredible. (laughs) I think I, you know, I, yeah, I should have done a bit more myself on campus. I think I used to rock up in a full body tracksuit with my 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 flip-flops on. <laughs> and I was way too cool for school. I'd uh, do something and I'd go home. So I'm oh, I think I was the complete opposite, but I got there in the end. So but incredible start with Unilever, right? Like I mean that you couldn't have done much better coming out of university and and, and scoring a job with them. Absolutely.
0: A dream job, dream company and certainly what I'm doing today, my dream role. Uh, so yeah, started off. So Unilever has a fabulous training program and the first two years we are in different places, learning different things. So I've worked in a number of places and I've worked in factories. And for the first six years of my life with Unilever, I did a number of things. Worked in a Chennai factory, worked in Calcutta, ran production, did sales. I sold tea in Haryana in Delhi. So I learned all the grassroots roles. And I think it's really important part of careers to do some of the grassroots roles. You should know how stuff is made in your company, how stuff is sold, what it takes, what are the challenges to make stuff? What are the challenges to sell stuff? So I had wonderful time doing all these stints all across the country. And I saw a lot of, you know, rural India. You know, one of my beautiful stints in HUL, in Hindustan Unilever that really opened my eyes was eight weeks. Where they make you stay in villages in rural India for eight weeks. And village means it doesn't have electricity, it rarely has roads, women are not allowed to step out of their homes. It's those kind of villages. And it opens your eyes to who you're trying to serve. You know, the role of consumer immersion, really serving the needs of people everywhere become so alive to you you know you're not sitting in a fancy office without knowing the reality on the ground of what India really looks like of the people that we're serving how they really look so it's brought huge empathy and sensitivity for me doing stints like that
1: and, and so, yeah so was was how did that kind of look at that point right it might, it might be completely wrong but was it almost like this um taking products to the village as opposed to selling them to like a local store or how did that kind of work
0: you know these 8 weeks it, all of us management trainees used to it was in a place called Eta and it, we used to in those days have a dairy business and Eta was the factory in which we made dairy products and we had this we had a set of villages from where the farmers would bring milk to the factory mm-hmm. and the purpose of those 8 weeks for for us to just immerse into village life. And to be honest, I was from a small time. I was not from one of the big cities from which many of the management trainees came, but still a village in India was a pretty different, it was a pretty eye-opening experience living in those villages. So you literally lived in those villages with the way you ate with them, they made food for you. You lived in the house of maybe the village landlord you learned the local language, the local dialects and learned to communicate fluently. So it was meant to be a stint not where you sold something, but just a stint where you immersed into the life of villagers, you did little things to make their lives better. So for example, one of my projects was to work with the villagers to help them create a, you know, a road that connected them to the main road that could give the village access to many things. So I literally spent two months working with the villagers, building a road, doing physical labor in the sun as well with them. So it was, uh, I think it was so progressive 28 years ago to think that. I still think they have that program. They've changed the nature of that program because we don't have a dairy business anymore. But I do know that our future leaders live in villages in India to learn what life in 50% of India looks like.
1: And was, is this a driver for some, I'm guessing this becomes a driver for some of the, the social commitments and stuff that you, you bring into the business later on.
0: Exactly. It teaches you insights. When you're creating products and brands, you think about, okay, who am I serving? That's, you know, you think about the different segments of consumers. You think about the pyramid. You know, how do you serve people at the bottom end of the pyramid? How do you serve people at the top end of the pyramid? So you, all that thinking naturally becomes a part of your business thinking. So I did many of these grassroots roles for the first six years, and then did a number of roles in human resources, Chris, many of them. And then I became the HR head for Hindustan Unilever, which is, uh, uh, you know, I think I was the first woman in 90 years. That's another part of my story, Chris. In every job I've done, including the current one, I've been the first woman doing it. And it's been an incredible privilege of my life and an incredible burden because everything you do, the good that you do is amplified and the failures that you have are equally amplified in the business. Yep. So you're always under scrutiny. You're always, your impact is always magnified, good or bad. So it's been an incredible privilege and an incredible burden to be able to break some of these glass ceilings, to break some of these glass basements.
1: Can I just, you know, take you to the side here for a minute and just say like, you know um in today today we're a lot more open about mental health and talking about you know pressures that we're feeling at, at work and stuff how did you deal with some of this stuff early on
0: yeah uh, you know chris it was hard and and that's also what has driven my passion for inclusion that's mm-hmm. also what's driven so much of my passion to do more for women's empowerment everywhere And I am a big, uh, big voice for anybody who feels marginalized, underrepresented, a big voice for inclusion today. I think much of that comes from my early experiences of always feeling like I didn't belong, always feeling like I was in the fringe, feeling like I had to struggle twice as much to get my voice heard. So uh, it it wasn't that, uh, it wasn't open, Chris. It was, for example, I would. I would always have this challenge, do I conform? I mean, early in my career, when I was in factories, I would take great care to look tougher, feel tougher than all the men that were in the factory, for example. Like there would be a thousand people in the factory and I was the only woman. So I would be wearing these uniforms, the factory uniforms, making sure that I didn't look glamorous at all, making sure that I could blend in with the boys, look like the boys, talk like the boys, be blended. So the first few years of my career, I was always trying to conform and trying to be one one of the boys. You know, I didn't allow so much of my feminine side to come to work. You know, that was locked away at home. And uh, and, you know, I can remember so many times I have, you know, cried in. And this is another funny story, because there's never any loo for a woman, because when you're the first in a factory and they've never had a woman, there never is a loo. So all of the establishments that I went to in and Lever, the factories that I went to, the places I did a stint, had to always start by building a loo for me. (laughs) And I would be the only one using it. So I would have a a little space where I could go and cry from time to time that I felt like I just uh, didn't fit in or I called something wrong or I didn't have somebody to talk to because the pressure is enormous when you are trying to do something for the first time. So all these loo's are, you know, are jokingly called Lina's loos because, you know, <laughs> they're a nice brand to have. So when I was uh, they were saying goodbye to me from in the when I was coming to London eight years ago, the CEO in his farewell speech was saying that the capital expenditure of everywhere Lina went to increased because they had to build a loo for her. And you know, these loos will be remembered as Lina's loos. But the, the point is. It's hard when you have no one to talk to. It is hard when you don't have role models. It is so important to find a community of people you connect with. All the things that I talk about today, you know, build a mentoring network, build a network of peers that you can share with, make it easier for those who come after you. I have been so passionate about ensuring women don't go through the struggle I've been through or people who are minority in our business don't go through some of the struggles I've experienced. So, it's it's not easy, Chris. Like I said, it's been a privilege. I mean, to get the opportunities that others didn't get, but it's been a burden as well because you constantly okay. think about how do I make it easier for those who come after me. You know, today we have two hundred, maybe three hundred progressive policies across Unilever, and I can tell you that I've had a role to play in many, many of them whether it's more generous maternity leave than I experience, more generous paternity leave than our people experience, daycare centers in many of our places, uh, you know, policies on uh, ensuring women reach safely home. In many countries that we operate in, we've got to ensure women have access to a car or some kind of transport when they get home at eight or nine in the night because it's simply not safe for them to take public transport at that time of the night making sure that our women always stay in hotels that are well-certified, audited, their safety is, have been checked. Little things like bolts on the door from the inside. So many hotels didn't have that when I was starting my career. So it's So all, many of these progressive policies, all of that, I've had a role to play in many of them because I have lived that life. I've known how hard it was. And the little, little things have to be looked after, you know? transportation does the person have a loo to go to because sometimes when you're in distributed trade selling from morning to evening what do you do where do you go to you know do you go to someone's house how do you find someone's house that you find is safe in that area where do you you know so being very thoughtful about all that that passion has come from some of my journey but yeah it's not been easy chris i i i must write a book someday i keep thinking and never have the time to write a book chris i'm helping i'm helping uh, you right now (laughs) but uh, you know it would be good to put some of the practical things that uh, that you know women people who feel underrepresented have to go through because you're not the majority and everything is designed in an organization in the world for a majority
1: yeah and i can only assume that some of some of the uh, the guys that were ahead of you that could have been or should have been mentors were probably just threatened by you at the same time um but can can i can i ask um you know you said you said you blended in you wore the the same uniform what can you remember the day where you were like forget this i I need to make a move the way i do it the way i'm going to do it
0: Yes, yes, Chris. I went through a journey, you know. So the first five, six, seven years, all these grassroots roles, and I still didn't feel confident enough to be myself. But I was building up a track record of good performance. You know, I was being noticed as someone who was, you know, who shifts the needle, who makes stuff happen. Who, you know, I had built a reputation of negotiating with one of the, you know, most famous union leaders called Datta Samant, and having a successful negotiation in the factory. So people were noticing, recording. So I was also growing in confidence that I could get stuff done. I was doing different roles. And, sometime, and then I was pregnant and great. Of course, I was the first woman pregnant in the company, I'm sure. So people were learning what it did to get used to having a woman who was pregnant, I guess. And then I had a baby again, you know, very short amount of maternity leave. I was really keen to come back and, uh, you know, show everybody that a baby had not reduced my drive and motivation. I was going to come back and I was going to do everything, you know, 20 hour work days or whatever. And I was on emails and, you know, a couple of hours after having, you know, maybe five, six hours after having a baby. And I remember one of the women who worked in my team she uh, came to me and she said, I mean, she gave me a call and she said, Lena, do you know how you make it impossible for anyone, any woman in this business? She said, you know, you are setting standards that nobody can match, that you can have a baby and then in hours you'll be back on email, you will work till the last day of your pregnancy. You know, you are, you know, by breaking all these glass ceilings for us, you are an inspiration. But by doing what you are doing, you're making it impossible for any other woman to succeed. And that was like a wake up call for me. I said, God, everything I do, I am setting the standards for the women who come after me. And if I show, if I, you know, this will be the norm that women must have babies. They must get to work in hours. They must not ever do anything that allows them to be enjoy other facets of their life. And that was a real wake up moment. And at that time, I also had a coach. You know, the company was putting me through a leadership development program. And Nicolene was my coach at that time. Uh, And Priya was my colleague who gave me this tough feedback. But, and then I sort of said, hey, I want to do this, but I want to do this being me. I want to succeed being me. I want to be able to come and talk about my children at the workplace. I want to be able to put photographs. I want to be able to... Look good, be glamorous, do whatever I want, wear the clothes I've always wanted to. That was, you know, about six or seven years into my career. And that was a journey for a year or two. And then I had another baby. And I just felt myself more relaxed, more ready to be me. Mm-hmm. And Chris, that made me like twice more effective than I ever was in the first few years of my career, if at all, being more authentic being more vulnerable, being who I was, bringing my whole self, my challenges about balancing a home and life, stories of my kids to the workplace, all of that, making myself more human, more feminine, more human, made me more effective, made me more uh,
1: good at what I was doing. I, I believe it. And and then, so, um, yeah, oh, man, I think we're getting a great, great story here. So. Um, you know, you had the woman that came up to you and said, hey, like you're making it impossible for us. Yeah. How, how did you then balance like, um, you know, keeping the people that are coming up behind you with, you know, your own personal ambition to continue at the with the yeah. drive you already had?
0: Yes. You know, uh, Chris, I, my husband has been a huge influence to build a better balance as well because he sees me going down, this spiral of you know working 24 by 7 and then gives me a wake-up call but also my kids made a difference to me and I realized that I have to set the standard and I have to make it easier for other women I want them to aspire to be like me not say oh my god I never want to be Lena because it is a dog's world yeah yeah so uh, I started having little little disciplines like Friday evening I would leave my laptop at work not take it home and tell my team publicly that listen, I'm not taking my laptop home, I'm not going to be accessible. If there's something urgent, you call me. But if it's something really urgent, you know, that really, really needs me better be serious. urgent. And so, you know, so setting the boundaries for my weekends, for example, um, uh, setting, uh, you know, setting with both my family and my work, being very clear on expectations. So I do have chats with my family. I've been very open with my kids, my husband, my parents, my in-laws, you know, March is gonna be a really crazy month because of this, 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 this to get done. And then, but I'm gonna be fine in April and then let's make it work. So setting boundaries, negotiating expectations on both sides, all of that became a habit. So saying that, yes, I'll be immensely focused and present when I'm at work, but I do want to lead a multidimensional life. I do want to enjoy being a mother, being a wife, being a daughter-in-law, being good at sports, being good at, I love dancing, being a great dancer, learning a new language. So you've got to organize and create the space for that. But also talking about it. So it becomes very legitimate for people saying, Yeah, it's okay. Even senior people have the time to learn a new language, learn dancing, so can we. So it was about learning to put well being central to everything I did. You know, building three hours of exercise into my schedule, no matter how busy I am. I've always been three, three hours. Yeah. Three Incredible. hours of exercise every week. Yeah.
1: Oh, a week. I was thinking daily. I was like, whoa. No, three hours of exercise Run every and week. Running laps around me. <laughs> um, and, and, and can I ask, right, so this big, you know, the, you know, one of the the, the things that stood out um, in your bio was this, the, your achievement of the 50-50 gender balance. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit through that? And was that, you know, was that, um, you know, your experience with your team and you could just see like how that changed things and how did how did you kind of come to the realization that of the need to kind of balance it out and how that was going to just be also good for business you know
0: uh, i must say that uh, this was about 10 years ago 12 uh, eight or nine years ago 2012 and uh, it, we were having a senior leadership forum, like the top 100 leaders in Unilever were sitting together and planning strategy for the next four, five years. And as part of the strategy session, we saw so much data around the fact that our shoppers were women, our consumers were 80% women, that spending power of women, women was going to increase through the decade, that the, you know, we saw so much business case Innovation happened when teams were more balanced, that it was a real wake up call for us. And our then CEO, Paul Polman, followed by now Alan Joba, our new CEO, at that time said, you know, we should be gender balanced as an organization. It was coming from knowing that this is a business case as well as a moral case. But we didn't have all the numbers. Is it really gonna make a difference to the business? How, you know, what's going to happen to performance? But it was coming from a point of view that for a business, whose consumers, shoppers, employees, have 50% women in them, surely the leadership needs to be 50-50 and gender balanced. The world is 50-50, the work needs to be 50-50. And you know, one of the conversations that always moves people in the room is when you ask people, do you want the world to be as fair as it is to your daughter, as it is to your son? And normally, senior leaders and who have kids think about the question and say, oh, absolutely, I wanna create a fair world that's fair for both my sons and my daughters. And that sort of moves the conversation forward. So that's where the dream of 50-50 came from. At that time, we were 36% women in management and 50% felt like a very, very audacious goal. How the hell were we ever going to get to it? And you know, in last year, we went publicly saying we'd achieved the goal. And what makes it special is we've achieved it across all functions. So gender balance doesn't mean put all the women in marketing and human resources and all the men in the factories. We achieve gender balance in all functions, including supply chain, including engineering, including customer development. And we achieve gender balance in almost all countries we operate in, from Japan to Saudi Arabia, to India, to Taiwan. That's what makes it special, that it has happened across the world, across so many cultural contexts, across so many functions. But it took us eight, nine years to get Chris. We said this in 2012, and it took us eight, nine years of relentlessly ensuring that we were looking at appointments, we were looking at culture to build the business. You have to work on increasing representation, and you have to work on building an inclusive culture. And you've got to work on both together to be able to meet a gender balance goal.
1: Well, to put it in perspective for the listeners too, though, right, we're talking about 150,000 employees.
0: We're talking about 150,000 employees. We're talking about 15,000 people in management. We are 50-50 balanced in all levels of management. So we have balanced management in the larger workforce. For example, in our uh, clerical staff, we have 50-50% representation in any case, but this was ensuring at all levels of management and leadership, we have
1: 50-50. And, and, this, and this drove a lot of growth too, right? Like it was like good business too.
0: Yes. You know, think about it. The more inclusive you are, the more ideas come forward. And the more ideas come forward, the better you have a chance to build a better business. So now I don't even have to say it because there have been so many studies published in Harvard Business School, written by McKinsey. God knows everyone has written articles about how a better balance leads to better business. How greater diversity in the workplace imp- has real economic implications for the business for the economy. So now I think people don't spend too much time on the business case. Yeah. I hope. I
1: hope not. I hope not either. And mm-hmm. and, um, and so look. So then here you are. You know uh, the first female, first youngest ever. Um, you know, C H R O of Unilever. and you know you've, you've achieved this incredible goal 50-50 balance I mean I m- imagine that would have been you said nine years but you also had all the you know the cultural implications and, and everything else around the world what what is next Lena well you you're know, done time time to relax on the beach
0: <laughs> Chris if you know me well you will know that I will relax on the beach and I will still want to do more. You know, I do want to continue uh, having an impact on many of the social commitments we've made in Unilever. You know, I'd love to lead a business. I'd love to lead a country. I secretly dream about being Prime Minister of India and all of that. I would love to lead a business. I want to. I would love to continue having impact. I want to make sure human capital has all the importance it deserves in the world. You know, today financial capital people get. Human capital, people don't get. I mean, in the p today of a business, people still feature in the cost line. They don't feature anywhere else. They don't feature in any investment line. They feature in the cost and expense line. So I am on a mission to bring human capital and the importance of human resources to every top table in the world, in governments, in businesses, in institutions. Because people say people are our most important asset. But then you follow up with them and you ask them, OK, people are your most important asset. What have you invested behind them? You know, what have you done for them? And then you'll find it comes up hollow because people don't know enough for their human resources and the human assets in a company. And COVID has shown us that the strength of a company, the resilience of a company is all about people. It's shown us that when you care about the safety, health and well-being of people, your business will succeed because your people make the business successful. So I am really going to spend a lot of my time. There's no retirement for me, Chris, not for a very long time. I mean, my dad is turning 90 and it's getting hard for us to get him to retire. So my mom almost predicts that that's going to be my story. I'm going to be never agreeing to retire in any shape or manner. But, uh, you know, uh, for me, really getting importance of human beings at the table is a big one. Now, so... My purpose is to ignite the human spark to build a better business and a better world, and I am never going to tire of living my purpose every single day.
1: Love it, love it. Now I have to quickly again side 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 note. Um, what does Dad say when you um, get the the note from the Queen?
0: <laughs>
1: oh, he's extremely
0: <laughs> proud. All, you know, I think he's, he and both my parents have been, uh, are very, very proud and read everything I write and, uh, you know, and watch anything I do. So they're extremely proud. In fact, it's a bit embarrassing because I've got to tell them to shut up. And because there's, you know, <laughs> the neighbors, the family, the relatives, everyone gets stories about, uh, you know, what Lena is doing next. So I have to say, please, please calm it down. They're incredibly proud. They're incredibly proud
1: well Lena I, Hugely I, I,
0: supportive and touch wood I'm like desperately worried about them with everything that's going on in COVID yeah but I must say I've been extremely lucky both my parents and my in-laws I mean my father-in-law and mother-in-law are extremely proud so it it just feels great that they are all so supportive and so proud of everything I do
1: yeah probably keep you grounded when you're back home too
0: it does, it does. And my kids keep me grounded, Chris. They're making fun of me all the time. Mom, get off on Instagram. It's not for someone your age. They're constantly making fun of me. The last person to take career advice from, mom, because mom will brainwash us. Don't bother listening to her, you know. So my kids keep me grounded.
1: Well, Lena, I gotta say thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. Um, yeah, one of the most inspir- inspiring stories I've had the opportunity of hearing firsthand um
0: such fun chris. Yeah, well, I had fun. my only measure of whenever i do any of these is that i had fun and i had fun
1: but <laughs> but <laughs> thank you thank you thank you very much for joining us love the story and um yeah hope to get you meet you in person at some point
0: thanks chris thank you for tuning in to keep up to date with all things startup grind visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you Until next time, chase the vision
1: and keep hustling.